Matthew 3, verse 1 says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Appetizing, right? (laughs) Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is um, a passage with some exciting things, some daunting things, so we pray that you would show us a lot of grace this morning as we wrestle with your word. We pray that we would hold dearly to our Jesus as a light of this passage. I pray that we would leave this place seeing and thinking and experiencing the goodness of who our Jesus is and the life of promise that we have in him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, we are kind of continuing a theme that has been started from the very outset of the Gospel of Matthew. You may not even really understand or realize that we've been kind of going through this theme, but this theme is the kingship of Jesus. So, in the very beginning, in the genealogy, Jesus comes from the line of David, just showing that he is from the the king line, the promised one that was given to David. And then you move forward, you get to Matthew 2, where this climax of this theme is really picking up a little bit. The wise men come to visit Jesus after his birth. And in verse 2 of the chapter 2, the Bible says this is the Magi speaking to King Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. You're seeing a transition here that happens in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the very last time that King Herod is called king throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. The kingship is transferred from Herod to Jesus. And so we come to this passage this morning, continuing this theme. And you may be thinking, okay, what does John the Baptist have to do with Jesus being king and continuing this theme of Jesus and the arrival of his kingship? Well, John is this mysterious, like, enigmatic figure throughout the Gospels. He, he's dressed in camel hair. He has a ratty leather belt. He eats bugs and wild honey from the field, and he lives down by the Jordan River. He's literally, if you could personify a biblical figure that was Chris Farley, the motivational speaker who lived in the van down by the river, it is John the Baptist. (laughs) 
So what in the world is going on with John the Baptist? Like why? He's in every single gospel. He's one of the figures, primary figures, that shows up at the very beginning of all four gospel accounts. And what does he have to do with Jesus being king? This weird guy wearing camel hair and a ratty leather belt. What does he have to do with Jesus being king? Well, in the days of Jesus, there was always a herald or a messenger who would go before the king to announce his arrival. Now, we don't really have like this. It was a profession back then. There's not really a profession like this today. The closest thing of carrying the torch of a herald or messenger would be like news media newspapers. Um, You have titles like Boston Herald that are carrying on this herald name. The most the thing that we probably experienced the most in terms of someone coming and heralding here in the city of Louisville was just before Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral here in Louisville a year or two ago. Um, so all of our news channels were keeping us up to date with how his health was doing. When his health was declining, they were promoting his funeral that was going to be held here in the city. And you could see that this was something that had been in the works for a while because you had t-shirts that were made, and there should be some, some pictures that are showing this, uh, t-shirts that were made, there were signs that were made, flowers that lined the streets, crowds, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets as the procession came forward to Muhammad Ali's funeral. And all this was done because it was heralded before he came back into our city for his funeral. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing here for the arrival of King Jesus. He's heralding, he's making way for the arrival of the king. You see this in the quotation of the book of Isaiah in verse 3, where it says, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. And every time a, a herald arrived on the scene, he always had a message. And John's message is this Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the long awaited Messiah. The promised one that was given to God's people from long ago. Years of anticipation waiting for this Messiah to come. And then the message is repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. I I don't know about you, but I have a different picture in my head when I think about someone that's been promised from hundreds of years ago that's going to be arriving on the scene to come and save a nation from their captivity. I, I think... And this is supposed to be a little funny, but I, I, this is what I think. I think of Aladdin, right? Prince Ali. He's showing up. Like, it's an experience when Prince Ali shows up in Aladdin, isn't it? Like, they got the wardrobe. They got the songs. They got the entertainers. They have everything. And what, what are the things that are being said? Handsome is he. Bend on one knee. Ali Ababa, right? He's got golden camels from everywhere, apparently. He's got all these elephants and these monkeys. Like, they're singing his praises. He's, he's slain hundreds of thousands of men by his own sword. Like, they're singing how great Prince Ali is. But that's not the message that we have initially here about King Jesus. The message is repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not a message to get physically ready for the arrival of the king, cleaning the streets, painting the buildings, fixing up your hygiene to get ready for him, putting on your best foot forward. No, instead, John is calling that God's people would go a spiritual revolution in order to prepare the way for the arrival of the coming king, the promised one, Jesus Christ. 
literally calling people to get rid of anything in your life that keeps you from complete devotion to God and replace it with love and obedience for God's commands. It's a message that John brings to God's people. And we see a number of different scenes throughout this story. All right, So the first scene we see, John's baptism. People are literally coming out of the woodworks to come see him at the Jordan River. Second, you see his sharp rebuke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees whenever they come out for his baptism. And then third, you see him redirect his attention to the masses, the crowds, announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to do this morning, all right? I want to unpack this idea of repentance for us a little bit, this message that John brings to God's people. And I I think there's three things that I want us to look at to realize, all right? First is this. I want us to see the gift of repentance, We'll see this in John's baptism, verses 5 through 6. Second, I want us to see the heart of repentance, which we'll see in verses 7 through 10, John's rebuke of the religious leaders. And then finally, I want us to look at the announcement of Jesus, the very person that we cling to in our repentance. All right? So let's look first at the gift of repentance in verses 5 through 6. I'll read them again just to refresh our minds. It says this. And then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, that's John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So the scene here is a scene of a spiritual revival that's taking out for the, the nation of Israel. I mean, people are meeting John in the wilderness from literally everywhere. They're flooding out of the capital city. They're coming up from the southernmost parts of Israel. And then they're coming out of these places of hiding on the Jordan River where they've literally just been living in isolation, coming out, getting, trying to get away from Roman rule over their life. They're all coming out to John at the Jordan River. And this idea of this scene of revival is taking place, and it's literally this picture of people turning away from their sin coming out, confessing their sin, going through baptism, and genuine life change happening. You can see this from Matthew 21, 32, later on when John is, or Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. He says this, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. These are the people that are coming out of the woodworks, coming to see John for his baptism at the Jordan River. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. So the most grotesque people of all of Israel are flooding out to John, and genuine life change is beginning to happen through this baptism of repentance with John. But notice the last few words in verse 6, because I I think that's hidden where the gift of repentance really lies. They came confessing their sins. Where's the gift, right? So stick with me a little bit, all right? The word confess here is a compound word in the the original language. It's literally two words that are smashed together. So the first part of the word literally means out loud or openly. And the second part of the word is the sequence of events that really happen within you. So the first one is agree. Second is that you admit. And then third, you confess. So the idea here is that people are going out to John in the wilderness. They're openly confessing their sins. Outwardly sharing that they agree that they are sinful people, admitting to specific sins of their own life, 
and then confessing and turning away from it. So here's the gift, all right? When it comes to repentance and turning to Jesus, you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. The truth of our state is this. First, God knows everything about you. There's nothing that is hidden from our God about your very life. Psalm 139 gives a picture for this where the psalmist says, you have searched me and you've known me, and he shares with us the ways that God has known him. And he's speaking all of our accounts. First, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. God knows that very movement, every movement that you make. Anytime that I move somewhere, God's aware of it. He even says that whenever there, before there's a word on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. He knows everything about you. When it comes to your life, there are no surprises to your God. When you, you come and confess your sin to him, he's not, that's surprising, brand new information. That's not who our God is. No, he knows. He knows everything about you. There's no surprises. And then second, we're all in the same boat. There's no one that is superior here. None. Romans 3 says this, all have sinned. Every single one of us in this room, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, we, we spend hours, days, years of our life worrying away what our reputation will look like, if we're going to be rejected by people, what their thoughts are in their head of us if we come and we share and confess our sins. But this news for us all is that we are all in the same playing field. We are all absolutely in the same need of grace from our God for the forgiveness of our sins. So here's the beauty about repentance when we turn to Jesus. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. You can come boldly confessing your sin because you have a good and gracious Jesus who forgives you of your sins. Every one of us, no matter what you've done, he's waiting there with open arms. Now listen, I'm not saying that this isn't scary at the same time, okay? It can be. From the very outset, from the very beginning of humanity, our response to sin is to run and hide. Genesis 3, what happens after they eat the forbidden fruit? They hide from one another, and they also hide from God. Our very response to sin is to go and live in isolation. To hide. It's a scary thing to face your sin. It's a scary thing to bring your sin to things that people may not even know about you and come and openly confess those very things. This, this past um, winter, we had a, our staff had a, a Christmas party. And um, at the very end of that Christmas party, uh, I'm joking around, but I make a joke about someone that's kind of at the expense of one of our staff members. It's at the very end of the party. Everybody's kind of leaving. And so I go home, and I can't sleep the rest of the night. I can't sleep. Like, I'm so embarrassed that I would make a joke at the expense of one of our staff members. It's one of those things that I know I can't just, like, send a text to say sorry. Like, I need to go and say it to their face. And I, I couldn't sleep a wink the whole night. I was, I was scared. 
I was scared what this person's response was going to be. I was scared that they're going to lash out at me. Like, I was scared of all these different things. You know what my thought in my mind really was? Like, it's so stupid, but this is it. I'll just avoid them. <laughs> Their office is literally right down from mine. But I can avoid them. Like, I can figure out ways that I can just avoid this person for the rest of my life. They're literally five feet away from me, but I can, I can avoid them somehow. Like, that was the thought that was going on inside of my head. That's our response to sin. But the goodness of our Jesus is this. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The good news about Jesus And the arrival of his kingship is that you do not have to hide. The promise is if you come and confess your sins openly, admit it, agree to it, turn away from it, you're met with forgiveness. You do not have to hide. The way that you make straight the path of the Lord is openly admitting our sin to Him and to one another. So that's the first scene, John's baptism, and it's the gift of repentance. You don't have to hide. You're completely forgiven if you come confessing and repenting of your sins to your King Jesus. Second scene is the warnings that John has, and I think here is where you see the heart of repentance. Verse 7 through 10 says this, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The response John has here for the religious leaders is a lot different than he had for the crowds. He actually calls them two things. First, when he calls them a brood of snakes, right? Not necessarily like a term of endearment there. He's saying that they're evil, they're cunning, they're deceitful. And the the picture that he's putting here is that there's this brush or this pile of extra wood that's been built and these snakes have gone and hid in this brush in this pile. And as soon as it's lit on fire, they squirm out for the sake of their own life. There's nothing that's genuine about the Pharisees. When it comes to their lifestyle and the way that they live, they're only looking out for themselves. And you, you can kind of get this, that their response of coming out to the wilderness is not necessarily because they like, sincerely feel the weight and conviction of their sin. No, it's, it's kind of like the popular thing that's happening. And so they go out to be partake in this very thing. And John calls them out on it. Eugene Peterson actually rephrases verse 7 like this. When John realized that a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded on them. A later translation of the question of who... Who thought for you to come and flee the wrath of God? Says this, when, you, when have you ever thought yourself in the wrong or confessed sin that might make you fear wrath? They're not genuine. They're not coming out to John because they sincerely feel the weight of their sin. No, they're, 
They're just coming out because it's the popular thing to do. They're trying to hold their status with God's people. Second thing he calls them is he calls them entitled. That stinks. He says, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Since they hadn't commit, committed any egregious sins, and since they were Jewish, they came from the right family line, they, they just assumed that God's salvation was theirs. They were entitled to it. And John mocks them for it. I, I love that about the, the Bible. Like God literally, he will mock people for saying certain things. Trash talk a little bit, if you like. So God, he says this, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Literally saying, like you who think you're higher and better and have more prestige than anybody else, you're no better than a stone. You entitled jerk. That's just my, that's just my interpretation. So, like where, where do you find the heart of repentance here? And all these warnings, what's going on? Where do you find the heart of repentance? Well, there's a word here, therefore, and there's like an old silly joke that it always says, like, wherever there's a therefore, you've got to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? All right? Because it's always making a primary point. I'm glad that you laughed at that because I don't really think it's funny, but whatever. <laughs> so the passage, the line that I'm looking at here is in the very middle. It says this, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. The heart of repentance is sincerity. The very thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees lacked. There was no sincerity when it came to the weight of their sin. I love the Heidelberg Catechism's definition of repentance. It says this, Repentance is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. There's three movements to that. The the first one is that you're genuinely sorry for your sin. You recognize you have sinned and that your sin is hateful to God. Literally separates you. He can't associate with sin because he's too perfect and pure. It causes a grief and sorrow inside of you. The Bible actually says that there's two different types of sorrow. So there's a worldly sorrow and then there's a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death and a godly sorrow leads to life. A worldly sorrow is nothing more than regret. Regret that you screwed up or embarrassment that you were caught in some action that you never wanted to be associated with but still partook in. It deals with the initial symptoms of sin, but it never actually deals with the actual disease of sin. And oftentimes the result of a worldly sorrow is there's anxiety or despair, depression, or even bitterness that raises up inside of you. A godly sorrow, though, focuses on the heart, your very soul. It has a sorrow for sin, even things that are done in private that nobody is aware of. Like, if you, if you want to know if I'm really pursuing after Jesus, if there's actual life change, if my, my salvation in the Lord is legit, I think you can ask the question, have I ever confessed a sin that was done in private? Something that was that people may be even surprised to hear that I would do. Have I ever confessed that openly to the Lord or someone else? Because if so, there's sincerity that's going on inside of you. A genuine sorrow for the sin that separated you from your God in heaven. 
The second movement is that not only are you genuinely sorry for this sin, but you grow to hate it. You hate it more and more. You agree with God's evaluation of your sin. That it's disgusting, that it's separated from you, separated you from God, and that it has to have a price that's paid for it. You hate it more and more. It's commonly said like if there's a spiritual renewal that happens in your own life or even revival that breaks out in the church, there's two primary things that happen. One, there's a growing awareness of your own sin, and there's also a growing awareness of God's holiness, His perfect, pure character, and how they cannot mesh together. And that's exactly what is being discussed when it says you have this growing hatred for your sin. You hate it more and more because you're becoming more and more aware that God is more separated from you than you ever thought. The only one that can impart life to you cannot associate with you because of your very sin. And then the third response is that you run away from it. You literally make a personal commitment against the sin. Like, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. And you turn away. Here's the thing about repentance, okay? Like, repentance and faith have to go hand in hand. They have to go hand in hand. One pastor puts it like this, faith and repentance are two names for the same heart attitude. All right, so whenever it comes to faith and repentance, here, here's the essence of it, okay? Repentance is the negative aspect of your salvation while faith is the positive aspect. Repentance, you're turning away from something. You're literally saying no to it, turning away from it, but we're kind of like parasites, When you turn away from something, it's not like this smorgasbord of all these different options that you can now walk into that are like, no, you have to cling to someone. And that's the positive aspect of your salvation. You have faith in the only one who can truly save you from your sins, and that's Jesus Christ. You turn away from your life of sin. You denounce it. I'm done with it. I see where it's brought me, and I want nothing to do with it. And you turn to Jesus, the only one who can truly impart life to you. That's the heart of repentance. There's genuine sincerity, a sorrow for your sin, where you want nothing to do with your sin anymore, and you want everything to do with Jesus. Which leads us to the third scene. John's announcement of Jesus to the crowds, verses 11 through 12. I'll read it again. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. John's turned his attention back to the crowds. And I think the, the passage begs the question, what's so much better about Jesus than John? There's a, there's a massive movement that's happened under John's leadership. A huge following that he's gotten. Like, there's a revival that's broken out with John. And if you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus is often mistaken for John. John, Jesus even speaks so highly of John that, like, man, 
I, don't, I can't even imagine someone saying this about me. Matthew 11, 11 says this, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. So what's so much better about Jesus than John? John lays it out for us here, and it's pretty easy. He says everything is better about Jesus. Absolutely everything is better about Jesus over me. He says, I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. Literally, to be Jesus' servant, the most lowly position that you can have throughout all of Israel. Not, not even worry, worthy to carry Jesus' dirty sandals. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but Jesus himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Literally, eternal life or eternal death. There's no greater power than that. John's words had influence on the people of Israel. Jesus' words have power. Literally removes evil spirits from people's lives. He heals the blind. Physically raises the dead from the grave. John's words had influence. Jesus' words had power. John's baptism symbolized the changed life. Jesus' baptism changes your life. John prepared the way for the coming king. Jesus is the coming king who's arrived. Everything about Jesus is better than John. And John leaves you with this ultimatum at the very end of this passage. Everyone who walks this planet is left with this final decision. Are you going to receive or are you going to reject Jesus as king? Because there's no in-between. You either fully receive him or you fully reject him. You can't just pick and choose parts of Jesus that you like and let go of the things that you don't like. You can't say, I choose Jesus as Savior to forgive me of my sins, but I denounce Him as Lord over my life and don't want His authority. It doesn't work that way. He's either Savior and Lord, or He's neither. And he gets at this idea with this threshing floor. This idea of what it looks like if you reject Jesus as King. The threshing floor, there should be a picture up here was this hard level surface where you're separate, where the wheat and the chaff are separated. And so what they would do is they would take grain and they'd put it into the, the little ring and then they would mash it. They would smash it as hard as they could to separate the actual good grain from the chaff. And they would get these shovels and they would throw the shovels up in the air with the grain and it would separate. The, the grain was heavier so it would drop back down. The chaff was very light and it would blow away. And what Jesus, John is saying is that John, Jesus will come and he'll gather the good grain and bring it into the storage and then the shaft will be thrown into a fire that never ends. So here's, here's the ultimatum. You can either be the grain or you can be the shaft. If you repent and receive Jesus as king, you'll be the grain and he's going to save you. And he'll store you and he'll bring you into his home, his very family. But if you're the shaft and you reject Jesus as king, your future is nothing but eternal death. And this isn't 
The wrath of God is not this irritability of God. It's the love of God and friction with injustice of your very own sin. Everyone's sin has to be dealt with. And you either, either choose King Jesus to deal with your sin, and he imparts perfect, his perfect slate on you. No sin. Or you reject Jesus and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go argue my own sin before the Lord on judgment day. And John is saying, it doesn't go well for you. Your destination is eternal death. So listen, we're going to do, like, here's the application, and then we're going to close. The application is the same for all of us. Repent. Repent. For those that aren't Christians here yet, step into the gift of, of repentance. You don't have to hide. God knows your sin and you don't have to hide it from Him. It's impossible. He knows everything about you. Step into the gift of repentance and make it known. The only way to disown your sin is to personally own it. If you want freedom from your sin, you have to face it. Here's the good news about Jesus is he faces it for you. He stands in your place. The death that you deserved, he faces for you. He gives you the resurrected life. Just like the prodigal son who understood and realized his sin and denounced it and returned to his father and he met his father with an open arms and a willing embrace is the same way that your Jesus meets you. Don't hide. You don't have to anymore. Embrace the gift of repentance. For those of us that have been traveling in this walk with Christ for a while, make repentance your way of life. It's not just this one-time event in your life. Martin Luther, whenever he went and he nailed the 95 Theses on the church door, at the very beginning he says this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Listen, as a Christian, we repent not because we lose our salvation, but because we want to be like our God. We want to be holy. As we walk this this path of faith with our Jesus, just as your feet get dirty if you walk on a dirty path, so our lives become dirty with sin as we live the Christian life. And what we do when we repent is we're getting rid of that dirt and we walk in holiness with our God. Your sin, whenever you confess it, you're confessing forgiven sin. Think about that. When you confess your sin, you confess forgiven sin. Get rid of the dirt. Walk holy with your Lord. Whatever your soul requires for you to stay sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, do it. Master it. Become a black belt in it. So that the Holy Spirit, the sensitivity of your soul, will lead you to repentance where Ever sin might be in your life. Now, I understand that 
a lot of us, um, some of us, maybe a few of us, have been walking this path of faith with the Lord, and we may feel pretty discouraged. When you look at your life, you may be thinking, I've been trying, I've been walking, and I don't feel like I see the growth in my life that I expected when I came to Jesus. Well, here's what I want to remind you of, okay? What, I, what you need to remember is where you are going is more important than your current placement when it comes to spiritual progress. Your direction matters more than your present position. Here's where I get this, all right? 1 Timothy 4.15 says this, Practice these things, be committed to them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Here's the reality, all right? And this is, I feel, the assumption of the passage. Your spiritual growth is likely to be recognized by others, other Christians, more so than you yourself in the walk with Jesus. You're so stuck and ingrained in this fight a lot of the times that you you lose sight of the growth and the development that has happened in your own personal life. And what the Bible is telling us is a lot of other people are seeing this growth. It's recognizable. What the, the good Jesus is doing in your life is recognizable by others. So don't lose heart. For the past year, my, our family's kind of made this resolution that we want to say things that are on our minds and our hearts that are encouraging to one another rather than just keeping them in. Um, so I, I heard a, I don't, I don't remember where this came from, but it was basically someone was saying, um, we, we as a society only eulogize one another whenever we're dead. So we only say good things about each other whenever they're gone. And the call was, we need to eulogize one another while we're still alive. And my family's tried to commit to that for the past year, and it's been beautiful. Like, we've heard things about each other and just experienced things that, um, heard things that they see in us that we don't see in ourselves. And it, here's where I feel convicted. Like, I want to do that as a church family. I want us to recognize the spiritual growth that is taking place in one another's life, and we eulogize each other presently before we're gone. Because here's the truth. Some of us in this room may be hanging on by a thread, and that very encouragement is the only thing that may keep us in pursuing and staying with Jesus. We need that encouragement. I need you to tell me where I'm growing because a lot of times I don't see it. And I would imagine that you feel the same. Listen, Christian, make repentance your way of life. And then encourage each other in the way that you see growth. Because a lot of us are likely discouraged. If you look throughout all the stories of the Bible where people genuinely repent... Oftentimes, the response is joy and celebration. You can look at the prodigal son. It's a good one. You can also look at stories like Zacchaeus. But Jesus functionally says it, like there's this party that breaks out in heaven when one person repents. It's Luke 15, 7. He says this, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. A few years ago, I was, I was at a conference and there's a pastor that I highly respect called Scotty Smith. He was there, and he was preaching on this passage. And he, he told a story about his mentor, Jack Miller, that I just haven't been able to get away from. 
So Scotty said that regularly he would catch Jack exiting a room with a person and a huge smile would be on his face. And so one day he decided to go ask a person that he had just come out of the room with with a big smile on his face and asked, like, what's, what's been going on? Like, what, what happened in this room? And the person responded that Jack was asking for their forgiveness for a very small minute, minuscule thing in their life, something that they had even forgotten as soon as they left the room the very previous day. And Scotty said this about Jack, and it's something I want for my life, and it's something I want for our lives as a church. He said this, repenting became fun for Jack Miller because he heard the heavens rejoicing. Repenting became fun for Jack Miller because he heard the heavens rejoicing. You don't have to hide. You have a Jesus. His arms are open wide and he's ready to forgive. Make repentance your way of life. Encourage one another. God knows we need it. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that for those of us who are still wrestling with this Christian faith, that you would grant us repentance this morning, that for the very first time we would see the beauty of Jesus, the ugliness of our sin, and we would turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. We would cling to him for everlasting life. For those of us that have been walking in the faith, whether it's sleepy Christians or or saints in the faith, I pray that you would help us make repentance our way of life. Give us eyes to see the growth that is taking place in one another's life and give us the courage to speak it. Then we may be encouraged and spurred on to continue in the faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the loaf of bread and he broke it. And he shared it with his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take it and eat in forgiveness of your sins. Cling to me as your Savior. Repent. Cling to me as the only one that can save you from my sins. I will stand in your place on the cross this very night for the forgiveness of your sins. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is a cup of my blood. He shared it with his disciples and he said, every time that you drink of this cup, remember my blood that is sacrificed on that cross for you. And that very night he did. He, shared, he shed his blood for you and me so that we don't have to hide and that we can walk life with God for eternity. So Christian, as you come and you take this meal this morning, remember what Jesus has done for you and walk in repentance. If there's something that you need to confess, confess it before you come and take this meal this morning. For those that aren't Christians in this room yet, don't take this meal yet. Take Jesus. Repent from your life of sin and cling to Jesus because he gives you eternal life. Come and take whenever you're ready of this. The wine is marked by twine, so don't be surprised whenever you dip it into the cup. You may come whenever you're ready.